Welcome to Biodiversity Speaks. I'm Dr. Helena Jolly, a scientist who studies human-nature relations and your host today at yet another amazing episode of Biodiversity Speaks. Today, we are joined by a remarkable scientist who has dedicated her work to agroecology, a field that has always fascinated me. Her research delves into the dynamic interplay of rights related to food production and consumption within the realms of agrarian reform, food sovereignty, agrarian citizenship. She's been involved in diverse projects such as community-based investigations into farmland access and shift to organic farming, seed sovereignty studies in British Columbia, exploring agroecological transitions and influence of institutional procedure in Ecuador and Brazil, and examining impact of urban agriculture and farm-to-school nutrition programs on food literacy education. She's a professor in the Institute of Resources, Environment and Sustainability, Faculty of Land, Food Systems at University of British Columbia. Please welcome Dr. Hannah Whitman. Hello, Hannah. Welcome to Biodiversity Speaks. I'm excited to have you here. And thank you for taking time to join. Thank you so much for having me. It's exciting to be able to talk about the work that we're doing together here today. And I must add, what an incredible amount of things that you're doing. Like, you know, when I was reading through your CV and website, I was like, how does she do all these things, all these amazing work, which is spread across all over the globe? Like, you know, I'm so, so impressed by the work that you're doing and it's, it's all done with inspiring. lots of people. So it's I work collaboratively with community partners and researchers and other institutions. So definitely none of it I've done by myself. So Hannah, let's start by exploring some of the meanings of the terms like agroecology, food sovereignty, agrarian citizenship. I'm sure the audience would love to learn while we are talking about it. These sounds really important terminologies to understand in your work. So why is it important to understand these concepts, especially in this contemporary world? Yeah, these are really important concepts because all of us in the world need to eat to survive. Even though we have staggering levels of food insecurity in the world, at the same time, the food system is the biggest global driver of impact on our planetary ecosystem. Agriculture covers 40% of the Earth's ice-free surface. It has a huge impact on global biodiversity. Agriculture is the primary threat to over 80% of species at risk of extinction. And food systems, when we include processing and transportation, contribute almost a third of global greenhouse gas emissions. At the same time, farmers and farm workers, the people who are actually responsible for bringing food to our plates, are among the world's have among the world's highest levels of poverty and that includes in Canada farmers have struggled to make a living they struggle to have the resources that they need to grow and gather and produce the food that that we need to survive so at the same time farmers lands landholders indigenous communities the food security that depends on these lands is also v- super vulnerable to climate change So given this context, there are many initiatives out there 
to try to improve agriculture to be better for planet and people. People use terms like sustainable or organic or regenerative. And many of these focus on really particular aspects of the food mm -hmm. system. So changing our diets to eat less meat. A lot of uh, organic agriculture uh, suggests reducing the use of pesticides and fertilizers. Regenerative it talks about improving soil health. But many of these approaches to changing agriculture don't look holistically at the food system as a whole, and they don't actually consider issues of social and ecological justice. And they also don't consider kind of the rights and responsibilities when we talk about food systems change as a whole. So food sovereignty is an approach to food systems transformation that takes a holistic approach to change based exactly on those principles of social and ecological justice. Mm -hmm. This is a movement that emerged on the global stage in the 1990s in response to global food security initiatives, which these social movement actors argued were focused primarily on moving primary commodities through the global trade system, which had then devastating impacts on local communities, farmer livelihoods, and local ecologies. Think about, for example, agribusiness investment and government investment in advancing soybean cultivation in the Brazilian Amazon, for example, or the expansion of palm oil fields in Southeast Asia. So these are kind of food system massive transformations based on investments of international capital that had very significant implications for uh, dispossessing people, including many indigenous people of their lands, and also threatening global biodiversity hotspots. So food sovereignty is an approach that is defined as the right of peoples to healthy and culturally appropriate food produced through ecologically sound and sustainable methods and people's rights to define their own food and agricultural systems. So this is where the concept of agrarian and global citizenship comes in to ensure that decisions about how agriculture can, trans to, can transition to sustainability and a sustainability based on the principles of justice can actually take into account the voices and the ideas and the, the rights of farmers, of indigenous peoples, and even consumers, rather than having this food system change be primarily di directed by uh, governments and agribusiness corporations. So Hannah, in some form, is it right to call food sovereignty uh, a human right? Or is it like too far-fetched? Well, the concept of human rights is very integral to the concept of food sovereignty. We have globally sanctioned the right to food, the right to water, the, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. All of these global rights are part of the food sovereignty platform. But I think where food sovereignty takes that one step further is also looking at the responsibilities uh -huh. associated with those rights. So whose responsibility is it to ensure the human right to fund? to food? Whose responsibility is it to ensure the human right to a healthy environment? Whose responsibility is it to ensure that the rights of nature are protected? And so the food sovereignty movement really takes those rights and responsibilities as two sides of the same coin, that food systems, which are in fact a marriage of human and ecological processes and dynamics, actually have to work together rather than um, working in an extractive way, which is how kind of the global agricultural and commodity sector has tended to treat these lands. So in some way, making that distinction between small-scale farming to a large-scale industrialized farming, is that... So there's been a lot of questions, and we've actually done quite a lot of research on this idea of are small farms more sustainable? And what we have kind of 
tried to do is is parse out is it the small nature of the farm that makes it more productive? Is it the diversification level? Is it the power dynamics? Is it the land tenure or land ownership? And so part of what we have found in the literature is that when you do kind of global analyses, small farms tend to have better metrics on diversification, on productivity. They also use a lot more labor. Mm -hmm. And so especially in North America, we're seeing kind of farmland consolidation and larger and larger farms and more mechanized. And as you kind of grow these farms, you're tending to homogenize the landscape. That doesn't necessarily have to be the case. We're working with a project right now that's looking at kind of field size versus farm size. So you could have a large farm, which has, you know, a very diversified cropping system, which employs a lot of people paying a living wage, mm -hmm. that has a lot of farm edges, that restores the riparian barriers. In this case, it wouldn't necessarily be the size of the farm that was the vector. It's actually the attitude of the oh. land steward to manage those lands in a way that's appropriate for the local ecology and the local community. So farm size has tended to correlate with some of our elements of sustainability, but it's also, we have done some work in Brazil that there are actually quite a lot of larger farms that do uphold these principles, and it has to do with the relationships that they've developed with their local ecology, their local communities, with their marketing structure, with their employees. Oh, that's really interesting. I, I didn't know that. You know, the general assumption is often like, you know, the large scale spawn being unsustainable and small scale being more sustainable. That's that's really interesting to know. So just taking further to your research based work and also like our discussion on food sovereignty, which we started, could you tell us more about like your research on food sovereignty and agri agrarian citizenship and what kind of inspired you to focus on these topics? So I grew up on a farm in northern Idaho. Uh, my family grew a variety of different crops. We had cattle. I did not want to be a farmer. <laughs> I, saw, I saw farming as a difficult lifestyle. I didn't understand the, the economic metrics of how to survive in North America in a time where commodity extraction was really the dominant way of farming. My family was very environmentally minded, so we did a lot of what we would call land stewardship, riparian restoration, reforestation, those sorts of things. And so I got quite interested in the interrelation between farming writ large and environmental impacts. So I went off to college. I ended up working in Latin America with small-scale farmers in um, Paraguay, and I really found some really interesting parallel similarities between my family's background and the families that I was working with in rural Latin America, how these farmers didn't feel like they had a voice in mm -hmm. where the food system was going. They didn't have a voice in their markets or their commodity structures. And they really felt, you know, like their kind, their way of life, their, especially in Latin America, biocultural heritage, the attachment that these communities had to their land, they were really kind of in the process of losing access to their traditional territory. And so I came to see that there's very little research and technology oriented to the needs of small-scale and diversified farmers. So agroecology is an approach to agriculture 
that looks at farm scale and, and landscape scale diversification as a kind of a pathway to social and ecological justice, that when we have a more diversified farm, you can be more buffered from climate shocks, from economic shocks. You can take advantage of, you know, trophic levels in the landscape. You can, you know, have food for consumption, but also for sale. And so what we found is that the government and private sector investment were really oriented towards primary commodity crops that were driving these large-scale agricultural expansions. So corn, wheat, soy, sugarcane, palm oil, rice, this is where the mechanization innovations were coming. And these mechanization really meant you had to have a larger landscape to be able to afford the machines. And then it led to an increasingly less diverse uh, mm-hmm. landscape over time. And so these these crops, you know, those are our, our, our food staple crops globally. Mm-hmm. They are very important, but they've been associated with large-scale environmental degradation, and much of this was based on kind of subsidies for livestock feed and, and biofuels and based on kind of subsidies to the fossil fuel industry, which also kind of feeds into the overuse of fertilizers okay. and, and, and the whole industrial food system as it, as it rolled on. And so I became really interested in looking at alternatives of what kinds of research is actually supporting diversified farming in such a way that farmers can still make a living, that landscapes are not being destroyed, and that people can have kind of sustainable work environments. And so we are working on a project now on agroecological transitions. So there's a very large global network of farmer organizations who are working with consumers, actually, to kind of co-design farming and food systems that are socially and ecologically just. They're interested in the impacts of their food production on their household and community levels of well-being. They're interested in documenting the impacts of different farming practices on biodiversity and climate mitigation. And they're also, you know, working on creating food systems that their children and their future generations want to be part of. So we've seen some really interesting dynamics with urban people getting back involved in agriculture because they're seeing these openings or these points of engagement with environmental, with climate change, with nutrition, with food literacy. And they're kind of looking at these as alternatives to the industrial food system. Wow. That's very fascinating, Hannah. And you mentioned about that you grew up in a farm and, you know, in some form or the other, it kind of drew your inspiration from your work from, you know, living in a farm. I was wondering, like every scientist or a researcher often mentions about the journey that led them to where they are today. So was there a a moment or kind of a event that led you to where you are now? You know, it's interesting, like, I never wanted to be a farmer or really even study farming, but I kept being drawn back into this fundamental question that if we want to do work that impacts the world, you know, farming is one of those spaces. And so I think continually being responsive to community organizations and what their needs are has also been a kind of defining a feature in my research, you know, how do I choose where I work? Sometimes it's because I'm asked to work there or community partners or community organizations are working together and they're interested in collaborating with the university to support them on um, research questions that they've brought to the table. And so I think in a sense, it's not been one moment, but it's been a series of moments that have led me into different places in my research maybe that I hadn't expected or planned for. And that's actually one of the reasons I really enjoy my job is 
I end up meeting new people and, and collaborating in new collaborations and we're constantly learning and we're constantly able to share information in a way that's more horizontal and less top down. Nice. Wow. And, and also, Hannah, the, you've conducted research in various regions of the world. You've already mentioned names like Brazil and Paraguay, Canada, and many other parts of Latin America, for that matter. While there may be conceptual commonalities, could you share like some specific motivations or reasons behind your work in these diverse geographical areas? Well, kind of following from my previous comment, generally it's by invitation. So... My, when I worked in Guatemala, I was a student, and I was working with a, a research group at Cornell University, and they had been invited to support a local agroforestry project on um, soil, soil management, sustainable soil manage, management and fallow management. And so our research team was invited there, and I met some people, and then through those relationships, I was invited back to do my master's research. Similarly for my PhD... Some of our my professors had a long-term relationship with researchers in Brazil who they themselves had long-term relationships with community partners. And so our research team was invited in to address some questions that had emerged on the ground. And I would say that's pretty much how my career has unfolded, <laughs> that you it's been relational, that that community partners that I have worked with have shared our work with other groups. And they have come back to the university saying, you know, are you interested in working on this other project? And that's certainly how our large agroecological transitions project came about in Latin America. We had been working in Brazil for a long time, and those Brazilian colleagues and, you know, social movement organizations were involved in a global network. And so they said, well, can we actually conduct a comparative indicator study amongst our whole group. And so we embarked upon this process during COVID, actually, <laughs> all on Zoom. We actually had a launch meeting in, in January 2020, where we all got together in person. And then for the next two years, we met on Zoom. And they, each kind of month, we would able, we would come up with some questions, and then the community partners would go to their communities, they would ha do their own work on the ground, and then we would come back together. And so it was really interesting how decentering the role of the researcher enabled these communities to actually do their own research. Oh. We did provide consulting. We did provide kind of frameworks or things for them to spin off, but they were the ones that came up with the, their own indicators. They went back and talked to their own communities. They brought their differences to the table, and mm -hmm. we were able to kind of design research instruments that met the needs of these really different communities in you know, seven different countries in oh, Latin wow. America. And so really being able to be part of facilitating that process of, you know, what we call the co-production of knowledge. It's not just a researcher coming in from some, you know, university in the global north extracting knowledge and taking it away. These farmers own their own data. They, they collect their own data. We support them in analysis, but that data never leaves their hands. It's definitely something that is, we feel very strongly about not doing extractive mm -hmm. research and much ecological and agronomic and agricultural research is very extractive. Absolutely, People yeah. come, they interview these farmers, they use precision agriculture, that data goes to the agribusiness corporation. Those farmers aren't left holding that data. And so one of the things that we're working on is kind of more citizen science methodologies where community members themselves are driving the research and 
you know, we can walk alongside them and learn so much. You know, our students are learning, we're learning, we're able to write the academic papers, we're able to write the grants, but at the same time, the community is taking its learning and using it, you know, for its own purposes, and they don't need us for that. You raised a very interesting point about the co-production of knowledge over here, like, you know, working with the communities. And these are areas of the world where people speak no, not English, right? Different languages like Portuguese and Spanish and Latin America. So as a researcher, like how do you navigate those spaces, like different languages? I, I Do you learn those languages? Yeah, I speak those languages. So oh, that's wow. another kind of, I mean, it's a personal choice, but I don't tend to work in areas where I don't speak the language. So that's interesting when I, when I recruit students and they want to work in these places. This is something that we also have to navigate. So some of my PhD students spend several years learning a language before they go and do their, that's very, do their that's research. That's very, very interesting to hear. Like, and has, has that process been easy for the students, this learning of new language and doing the research? I also think it's a, a piece of recruitment. I mean, I would say, you know, I recruit students who are speakers of those languages or from those countries mm -hmm. too, which yeah. isn't to say you have to be local to the place that you're researching. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm privileged to, both Spanish and Portuguese are colonial languages and they're spoken in many countries. Absolutely. So, yeah. you know, they, they're not indigenous languages. They're, they are colonial languages. And, and when I worked in Guatemala, we did have to have translation from Spanish into indigenous languages. So I learned from that experience that, it's better to be able to talk to people directly in languages that they speak. Yeah. The, so the other aspect about your work, which I found really fascinating, I work a lot with the indigenous communities here in Canada, also in India, was the impact of people's right and food sovereignty on agrarian reforms and how it provides valuable insights into you know how they contribute and transform the agriculture. Could you maybe elaborate a little bit more on how you believe these factors affect food systems and livelihoods in rural areas? Yeah, absolutely. So land is fundamental to food systems. I mean, as much as there's kind of global investment in cellular agriculture and lab-based meat, you know, that's not necessarily considered to be food by many cultures. And it has its own kind of environmental impact depending on the raw materials that are used and the genetic resources that are used. So, you know, for the communities that I work with, long-term secure land access is key as a land governance a strategy for agroecology. Many of the world's traditional and indigenous farming communities have had their land stolen mm -hmm. with, you know, intergenerational damage to their livelihoods and their, agri their agroecologies. Lots and lots of research has shown that territorially based land governance that kind of it rests on long-term relationships between people and land, mm -hmm. better supports long-term ecosystem functioning. For example, we have seen, you know, in the, in the Canadian prairies or in other areas in Latin America, corporations who rent farmland don't often invest in long-term soil health initiatives, such as cover crops, following diverse crop rotations, etc., because their shareholders are prioritizing short-term profits. They're not prioritizing, you know, growing a cover crop, which has a lower economic value. So, you know, ensuring long-term land security for people who are, have territorial relationships to that land is, is the only way forward to have kind of a food secure, socially and ecologically just food system. 
Yeah, and um, a lot of your work do talk about these kind of elements, right? And its significance. And when I was reading some of your papers, uh, and I came across National School Feeding Program, PNAE, in Brazil, which describes how it contributes to like women's empowerment in context of agriculture. So it's not just the people's right, but also your work dwell, you know, diverges into a lot of women empowerment and gender-related aspects. So can you elaborate maybe more on the relationship between women's participation in this uh, school feeding program and its development uh, related to diversified farming system, the agrobiodiversity and practices around it? Sure. So we did a whole series of projects looking at what we call mediated markets. So mm -hmm. this is where publicly funded institutions such as school meal programs can put socially beneficial criteria on their procurement policies. Uh -huh. For example, UBC prioritizes fair trade coffee and cage-free eggs in our on-campus dining programs. The Brazilian government offered a price premium for agroecological certified food produced by small-scale and family farmers. So this is sort of using the public dollar for socially and ecologically beneficial purposes. Rather mm -hmm. than buying the cheapest coffee or the cheapest eggs, we look at the social and ecological benefit of investing public funds into healthier and more in environmentally sustainable foods. And so these, in terms of global trade rules, are allowed because they're called social and ecological criteria. In one study, our postdoc Vivian Valencia found an association between women's empowerment and the use of diversified agroecological practices. And both of these were significantly influenced by participation in agroecological social movements that were facilitating participation in the school meal programs. Mm -hmm. So we see this complex dynamic that it's not just having the knowledge to grow agroecologically, it's not just having access to a market, but it's the social relationships that connect these families, that connect these women to supportive social networks that allow them to access kind of more power in the household, more control over their spending money, and eventually more control over production systems on the farm. So this really highlights the importance of social networks in market restructuring. So where are we in placing our investments in the future food systems? Where are our governments supporting the development of sustainable markets or different kinds of food production and food procurement schemes that actually are mutually beneficial? And this is probably a very Global South kind of a program because I remember like in India also they had a school program where students who would turn up to the school would get free food or free lunch, but there was no kind of a sustainable sourcing associated with that. So I was wondering like those kind of programs, does it have relevance even in countries like maybe Canada? Uh, absolutely. So most most countries have a school meal program. Canada is the only G8 country without a school, a national uh, school oh, meal program. Okay. And we have quite a few people in Canada working very hard to change that. So there's the National School Food Co Coalition. We have the Vancouver School Board it was heavily involved in learning labs with UBC, actually, to uh -huh. look at school meal programs. And so I think there is a lot of initiative on the ground in Canada to implement a national school program. We have a, a national food policy now. The government has actually agreed to start funding school meal programs. We don't see it actually yet in the budget, but this is a very active social movement in Canada to start to 
to take what we already know Mm -hmm. that connecting rural development and healthy food production with school nutrition and food literacy is really important for our future generations. Great. I'm sure like you will be able to give a lot more insights if such a program develops here, right? It's your experience in other parts of the world. And in context of agroecology, You've discussed extensively the fundamental principle of being, you know, responsible land governance, people having the rights, its connections to questions of power and privilege. Like maybe could you also like delve into how land governance influences maybe pursuit of agriculture, agroecological goals, particularly those within the settler colonial context like Brazil and Canada? So one of the fundamental principles of agroecological food systems is social justice. And it's hard to practice socially just agriculture on stolen land, which makes agroecological transitions in settler colonial states like Brazil and Canada a difficult and sensitive topic. In our kind of both our research and our practice with community partners, we have found that colonial legal orders, which foreground private property, land ownership, rather than traditional land governance regimes expressed in indigenous law, which are shared and very structured relationships with the land and the people as Mm -hmm. part of one system. So these private property laws have taken precedence. They've resulted in ongoing dispossessions of traditional landholders in favor of agricultural expansion. Or sometimes we even see this dispossession being used under the name of environmental conservation. For example, the installation of national parks across Canada. So actors involved in the food sovereignty movement also propose land governance solutions that they argue could support better and more agroecological outcomes. So, for example, some initiatives are working for more creative and hybrid approaches to overcome the land-property binary. For example, the BC Working Group on Indigenous Food Sovereignty right here in British Columbia is working in collaboration with Indigenous agrarian and agricultural networks to envision governance structures for what they're calling Indigenous foodlands conservation areas where lands are protected for traditional harvesting, hunting, fishing, gathering. Mm -hmm. The global network, the Via Campesina, has long advocated for states to conduct land reform. So land, you know, breaking up large estates and returning those lands to either small-scale farmers or indigenous people to counter historical land dispossession and concentration. Indigenous leaders and representatives at multiple scales from the local to the international, for example, through the UN Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous People, have emphasized land restitution as central to the self-determination of Indigenous communities around Mm -hmm. the world. And then finally, new new hybrid forms of land cooperatives or collectives, which could be based on the principles of respect and reciprocity are emerging in many settler colonial contexts as another possible solution. For example, the Foodlands Cooperative in British Columbia holds um, food-providing lands in trust for communities Mm -hmm. to steward and manage. And they have actually been working to open up space for a dialogue and action that could address some of these challenges related to settler farmland access, you know, in opposition sometimes to indigenous food sovereignty and land rights. Now I understand that agroecology is so relevant and also in terms of like the farming systems, how important it is in this contemporary world. So extending from some of the conversations we just had, Hannah, like can you give us maybe an overview of some of the key challenges faced by diversified farming systems today and 
why it's so important to address them, specifically with the lens of climate change or environmental health and food security? So in our research with diversified farmers in Latin America over the last several years, um, they have identified lots of challenges that, that they're working to overcome. You know, labor is a really important one. Often when we ask farmers, you know, even here in British Columbia, what is your biggest challenge mm-hmm. to, you know, diversification, organic certification, you know, they speak to the lack of agricultural labor that that many young people today, even having grown up in farming communities, aren't interested in farming. Farm workers are very poorly compensated, leading to programs like the Seasonal Agricultural Workers Program, bringing in farm workers from other countries to work for very low wages with very low access to healthcare, employment security, housing security, human rights violations. So, you know, Finding people to grow land, to grow food, is actually really challenging. This leads people to start looking at mechanization and homogenization of food systems. So kind of the labor diversification Mm -hmm. nexus is an area that we're actually doing a lot of research on with our community partners. What kinds of technology make labor easier in diversified systems? What, What are some accessible forms of mechanization that don't result in landscape homogenization. So those are some exciting, and a lot of the, the innovations we're seeing are coming from farmers themselves, and they're, they're working in farmer-to-farmer technology sharing networks. These are, these are often quite simple solutions that don't require, you know, large amounts of <laughs> patents and AI, but it's about relational knowledge and, and, and farmer-to-farmer knowledge sharing. Another challenge that farmers point out to us are, you know, we still have in place many public policies and subsidies that enable and support and even promote harmful agricultural practices. So in 2022, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization put out a report showing that more than 85% of agricultural subsidies, and we're talking about $470 billion annually. That's a lot of amount. It's a lot of money. More than 85% of these subsidies are what they call price distorting and environmentally and socially harmful. So we're putting public funds into the kinds of agriculture that cause human health problems, environmental problems, which then we have to put public funds into you know, address or not. And so multiple social movements, farmers associations, United Nations agencies, you know, certain government sectors are now, you know, advocating or working together or trying to put together agricultural support policies that support biodiversity-friendly farming and other elements of the sustainable development goals. And so what's really challenging here is that Many government agencies work in in silos from each other. The Uh Ministry of Health doesn't talk to the Ministry of Agriculture. Ministry of Environment doesn't talk to the Ministry of, you know, Industrial Development. So, you know, we have seen examples in Brazil. They had a zero hunger kind of policy platform that did actually bring together Ministry of Health, Ministry of Social Welfare, Ministry of Agriculture, Ministry of the Environment. And they were, you know, that's one of the examples Mm of the public procurement part program that we talked about where they connected kind of an environmental certification program with a you know healthy meal and, and nutrition program. So yeah. bringing those ministries together to combine forces actually led to a win-win outcome in that case. And Hannah, you've already touched upon a lot of future research plans, like, you know, plans that you're going to do in your work. So you put, is there something you're particularly interested to explore in the future? <clears throat> Yeah, so I'm working with many other researchers, both at the community level and at universities, figuring out some new ways to monitor, measure, and communicate 
the social and ecological contributions of agro agroecological production. Mm -hmm. So what often happens in, in research is we have our, our entomologists looking at insects and we have our soil science people looking at soil health and carbon mitigation. And so we're, you know, working together. We have the iBIOS group here that you're part of. We have our diversified agroecosystem cluster. We have the Center for Sustainable Food Systems, EBC Farm. So we've been developing coordinated and community-based monitoring programs that actually bring these elements together, that on one site you can actually... Farmers themselves can be tracking their management practices, and then we can also track, well, what are the climate change, you know, possible mitigation and adaptation outcomes? What are the ecosystem services mm -hmm. that these farmers are providing? You know, what are the, what is the the nutritional output of their diversified farming system? And so by working together, using some technology, actually, we have people looking at automated biodiversity monitoring, mm -hmm. we have people doing smart irrigation, we have people working on farm management apps, which can actually facilitate the sharing of common data so we can start to do more systematic integrated analyses of, of, of these agricultural programs where we actually look at the, the holistic cost benefit of different practices on farmer livelihoods, on climate change, on social justice, on all of these pieces that make up the concept of agroecology. And this is specific to Canada, you're planning for the future one or more like global? No, the, we're doing this globally now. So our network of agroecology monitoring organizations in Latin America are co-producing technology with us to, okay. that works for them on their farms. That's that's really fascinating, Hannah. And the other question which I wanted to ask, you just mentioned about IBIOS, right? Being an IBIOS member, I believe you are also taking some leadership role in UBC's biodiversity conservation discourses and research. Could you share maybe some exciting new things that IBIOS is involved in? Yeah, so IBIOS has been a wonderful community here at UBC that's emerged where people from different faculties we get together and we talk about things that we care about, which is biodiversity conservation, but biodiversity conservation that's beyond just locking up animals in a national park. And so it's been really exciting thinking about the cross-cutting issues with other entities at UBC. So I'm currently the interim co-director of UBC's Center for Climate Justice. There's a lot of kind of adaptation and mitigation initiatives around climate change, some of which are quite helpful to biodiversity and some of which are not. And so we're planning a symposium right now on the interchange of kind of critical minerals mining. So when we're talking about electrification, electric vehicles, this mm -hmm. is involving an uptick in mining of these oh, critical nice. minerals. Now this uptick in mining then has implications for biodiversity, social justice, and livelihoods. And so we're planning a symposium for the spring But we can actually have that cross-cutting conversation. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's really nice to know, Hannah. And I'm sure IBIOS is doing extremely well. I keep seeing about new projects and developments happening. So to conclude this particular session today, thank you, Hannah, for this wonderful discussion. I've learned so much today about the topics of, you know, agroecology and diverse farming and uh, small-scale farming. And, you know, it kind of broke a lot of misconception I had about farming uh, across the world. And thank you everyone for tuning in today. If you want to hear more about Biodiversity Speaks, you can follow us on our socials at IBIOS Program on Twitter and Instagram. This episode is hosted by me, Helena Jolly, edited by Liam Reed and assisted by Emma Jarek Simard. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, but until we meet again, think about the rights, food sovereignty, farmers, agrarian reforms and sovereignty and how it is playing a big role in transitioning the agroecology. 
Thank you. Thank you so much, Helena. <laughs>